Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And our special guest today is Dr. Brad Wilcox. He serves as the director of the National Marriage Project and professor of sociology, University of Virginia. He's also, which is important, a senior fellow at the Institute of Family Studies and a visiting scholar of the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Brad, I appreciate you joining us today. Jeff, it's great to be here today. The importance of a family, a mom, dad, children, especially biological mom and dad. I know you've written a lot about that. You've talked a lot about that. But I want to kind of emphasize that because we live in a culture that tries to say that, you know, any form of family is okay. And, you know, kids, kids will just adapt. They'll be fine. And I think through your studies, you show that that's not necessarily true. So can you talk about just in the beginning the importance of, of having an intact family of biological mom and dad and kids? Yeah, I think one thing that it's, it's worth kind of realizing here is there's a story about both kind of individual kids and there's also a story about community. So on, on the first side of that, uh, that ledger, so to speak, what we see is that kids are raised by their own, you know, married parents, their own married biological parents, you know, are markedly less likely to have teenage pregnancy and they're markedly more likely to do well in school, go to college, graduate from college. Um, less likely to be, you know, arrested, incarcerated, things like that. So, um, for instance, we know that uh, boys who are growing up outside of an intact married family are about twice as likely to end up incarcerated in jail or in prison by the time they turn 30 would be an example of that. Um, we see a similar kind of uh, risk when it comes to non-marital childbearing for girls. Um, so these are the kinds of sort of patterns that we see for individual boys and girls, you know, and, and the way in which having a... Uh, their own married parents um, at their side is helpful for them. But there's also kind of a community story. I think oftentimes we think about, like, what happens in our own family as sort of, like, what happens in Vegas. You know, it just stays in Vegas. Right, right. Um, But in reality, what happens in Vegas often, you know, <laughs> migrates out beyond Vegas. And certainly what happens in our families uh, ripples out and affects our, our neighbors, our communities, and even our country, of course. And so what we see, for instance is that when a divorce takes place, um, you know, among, you know, our friends or our family members, that's a much, you know, bigger deal for us than if it's happening, you know, among someone that we don't know. And so things like divorce are heavily networked. But that also means, too, that what happens in our own family affects, you know, our communities and our networks as well. And so, for instance, we see that one of the strongest predictors of incarceration uh, for boys at the neighborhood level is the fear of two-parent families in a neighborhood. And likewise, one of the best predictors of um, mobility for poor kids, that is sort of realizing the American dream, kind of rags to riches uh, pattern where you grow up poor and you actually make it a different class as an adult, is again two-parent families in your neighborhood. So that's all just to sort of say is that what, what's happening in our families matters for our individual kids but it also matters for our friends, for our family members, and in, in our larger communities as well. Well, and I think you spoke to it, but, you know, how do, you know, people somehow have gotten the idea that kids are just really adaptable, that they'll, they'll do fine no matter what's going on. And, you know, we see uh, same-sex marriage being promoted. We see the transgender movement. We see all these things going on, and kids are almost 
you know, a, an afterthought. Oh, oh, by the way, they'll be all right. And if, you know, if we want a kid, we'll just get one. Like there's a right to have a kid as opposed to children being a gift. And, you know, I think you've given some stats, but, you know, what do you, you know, the, what is the effect on those kids when we kind of treat them as an afterthought as opposed to they should be our primary concern? What we see kind of, you know, in the research is that, yeah, some kids are resilient. And if you talk to parents who have gotten divorced, you can see that, um, you know, some of their kids turn out just fine and that some kids raised by single parents turn out just fine. I, mean, I was raised by a single mom myself and, you know, I think I have most outcomes I've done okay. But um, the point is, is that kind of there are other kids, um, you know, who aren't as resilient in this in this way. And when they're experiencing turbulence at home, when they're experiencing, you know, a divorce, breakup, et cetera, um, that can be, you know, just a huge uh, negative uh, impact on their lives. And so, again, we do see in the research is that kids who are being raised outside of an intact married household are about two to three times more likely to experience serious uh, negative outcomes, you know, like delinquency or, or like a teenage pregnancy. Because they don't have that stability on the home front. They don't have, you know, two parents who are fully vested in them, um, you know, there for them uh, and with them as they kind of move through um, their 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 lives as, as kids. Yeah, and I think, you know, we had talked about before going on air, you know, what we're talking about are, are trends. It doesn't mean that everybody in every situation is going to come up and be in jail or grow up in poverty or all that. It's just there's a higher likelihood when it comes to children being raised out of an intact family. But it's important to realize that, you know, I think you mentioned it, you know, you're talking about resiliency. It's not like when we have a child, there's a, there's something stamped on their forehead and said, this child is resilient. You just don't know. Yeah, that's exactly true. And what's interesting is too, my, my colleague and former mentor at Princeton, Sarah McClanahan has done some work looking at kind of the genetic side of this, uh, this whole issue. And what she finds in her work with some colleagues is that, for instance, some boys have a unique kind of set of genes that make them more vulnerable to the absence of their father, you know, in the household, whereas some boys don't have that, you know, makeup. And they're, and again, they're more resilient. So, but there's no, yeah, there isn't, you know, like a little sign before that says, you know, if that's not there, I'm, I'm vulnerable versus the other boys who, you know, who are more likely to navigate that situation successfully. Well, before we go too far into it, I meant to, <clears throat> excuse me, do it in the beginning. How can people follow your work, your research, and really get a good feel for, uh, you know, what are these trends and the importance of uh, having an intact family? What's the best way for people to follow you, website or whatever? So um, I'm on Twitter at WilcoxNMP, and then our, our website is familystudies.org. That's a great way to just uh, get that you know, handle on a lot of uh, good research uh, reports. And then we have a, a, a daily blog that runs Monday through Thursday that gives, um, you know, parents, spouses, others, you know, articles and things like fatherhood, motherhood, marriage, divorce, infidelity, you know, stuff that is important for American families. And the other thing I can recommend, because I saw you have a lot of good videos on YouTube, if they were to type your name in and, and do it on YouTube, there's talks you've done at University of St. Thomas, uh, I think Baylor. There's other talks there that are really good because not only are you talking, but one of, I think the Baylor one, there's question and answer afterwards with the students. That's very helpful. But what got you into being interested in this topic? 
I was raised by a single mom. I think in college, um, I just came to the realization that, you know, fatherhood and marriage were kind of important institutions um, for, certainly for, you know, for me, but also just for kids more generally. And so that kind of led me into sort of the study of family sociology and, um, you know, did that in graduate school at, at Princeton before coming to UVA to be a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. Well, and I know that uh, you're quoted a lot. Actually, I, I came to, I found out about your name reading a book by Ryan Anderson called Truth Overruled. And you're quoted quite a bit in there about a lot of the stats that you were talking about before. And I can't remember if this was one that you put in there or there was a, another uh, sociologist who did. But one of the things that says girls who grow up in an intact family are much less likely to experience puberty at an early age. So, there's some there's some physiology involved in this too, right? Yeah, and we're not exactly sure what the story here is precisely, but I think part of part of the issue here is that um, stress seems to make um, girls mature more quickly, okay. and so having you know having that stress in your life um, accelerates the onset of puberty, which in turn can make girls more likely to be. Um, sexually active at a younger age, um, which in turn, of course, affects your risk of teenage pregnancy. So it's interesting here how kind of like there's a cycle that kind of builds um, where if you're protected from stress as a girl, you know, that's protective in a variety of ways. Um, and if you're not, you're more vulnerable in other ways. Well, there's a lot of times people don't think that, right? I mean, I think that you can't see it, so you might not think it. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, when you, you look at a lot of your research and things, you really understand how complimentary moms and dads really are and how they have special gifts. This wasn't an accident. God actually has a plan. And when we start tinkering with it, it, it things kind of go out of whack. But can you talk about what a mom brings and what a dad brings, just in general, that children really need? Sure. Well, so the research suggests to us um – and this is stuff that I think would not be particularly, you know, uh, sort of surprising to many of our grandparents. But I think it is more controversial, you know, to say these kinds of things today, even though they're true, is that when it comes to things like communication, when it comes to things like reading kids' body language, when it comes to things like expressing affection, uh, moms tend to have an advantage in those kinds of domains, uh, communication, nurture, et cetera. Um, and you can see that in research on babies and adolescents. So we've seen, for instance, work done in Boston, where when mom approaches, sort of the baby's face kind of settles down and, and body posture um, sort of settles, basically. By contrast, you know, the research suggests to us is that dads are more likely to challenge their kids um, to be an authoritative presence in their kids' lives um, and to play in a really vigorous way with their children, um, as well as even today to kind of provide the lion's share financially for their families. And so um, these, you know, things are all kind of important for kids. Uh, money's obviously important for things like, you know, uh, putting a roof over your head and um, maybe getting tutoring or, or, or paying a fee for soccer, things like that. Um, and having a father's vigorous play when it comes to, um, even roughhousing on the on the family room floor on a you know a Saturday morning or a, or a weekday evening, um, what we see is that boys who roughhouse with their dads more um, are more likely to be socially successful in their classrooms. Um, Think about kind of just that, that physical, you know, 
wrestling, tickling, you know, whatever else. The dad is kind of teaching his his son how to interact physically with someone and and learning, like, you don't bite someone, you don't punch someone in that kind of context, and that's helpful. Um, And then also in terms of just what we see is dads are more likely to challenge their kids to face difficulties and embrace opportunities. So there was one study done in France showing, for instance, that when toddlers were being um, taught to swim, moms were more likely to hold the baby face-to-face. Dads were more likely to hold the, especially the toddler um, facing outward into the, into, the, <laughs> into the deep, you know? Right. Um, and that was just emblematic of how moms and dads parented differently, and kids need both of those styles, you know, ideally when it comes to, um, you know, their upbringing, you know, as um as children. Well, and I think just listening to you kind of brings back memories of me growing up and that's exactly how it was. And I remember I had, a, uh, I have ch- four children. My youngest is almost 25 though, but our, our second oldest daughter, when she was in college one time came to me and said, dad, you know what I like about you and mom? And I was like, uh Oh, here it comes. But it was, you know what, when I go, when I want to hug, I go to mom. When I need a kick in the pants, I go to you and I know which one I need. And I think that kind of speaks to what you're talking about. There is, they need the both and uh, that one parent would struggle being able to do. Nobody could really do that. Yeah. And, and again, I think, you know, a lot of the parents do a good job trying to, to juggle all that. But yeah. I think it's easier when you have two parents on the scene to kind of give their kids uh, somewhat different kinds of both uh, support and encouragement on the one time, but also kind of like, you know, a, um, uh, a, a tough challenge, um, you know, a, a tough word when they're not living up to, you know, their potential and or the family, uh, the family rules too. Yeah, so it's hard to play good cop, bad cop when you're one person. Otherwise, they think you have a split personality, and then you got another issue you're talking about. But you know, one of the other things we talked about before going on air was the importance of bringing faith into the family. So, just having an intact family in and of itself, hey, that's good. But there's more to it than that, right? Faith is an important component based on a lot of things you've studied. So, yeah, what we see in the research is that when, particularly when couples are on the same, on the same page religiously um, and they're attending, you know, church services regularly, for instance, um, they're much more likely to put that they're happy in their marriages um, and they're more likely to uh, also to avoid divorce Estimates range between like about 30 and 40 percent less likely to get divorced. Uh, we also see actually more uh, sexual satisfaction on the part of uh, women, especially when uh, they attend church with, uh, with their husbands. So there's a variety of ways in which, um, you know, being religious, engaging, you know, in terms of a religious, being part of a church community, but also kind of praying at home uh, with your spouse, all these things um, are. Uh, uh, you know, to uh, these, all, all these things are helpful to kind of sustaining strong and stable families. Right. And I know you talked about, you know, it's not like fairy dust. Hey, if you just show up at church, everything's fine. You actually have to participate and, and you know, do things together, pray together, whatever it may be. Because you were, I think you were saying, you know, even 20% of the families that go to church, they don't pull or show that, Hey, everything's peachy. They may still be struggling. Everybody struggles at some point in time, but it's not a hundred percent. It's just it, it's an indicator that by having a strong faith component, things will go better within the family and the relationship with mom and dad. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, it's also important to acknowledge, too, that I think it's helpful, you know, when you are struggling in your marriage to, um, you know, as most couples do, you know, at various points in their lives, to have, you know, other couples, have a pastor, a priest, uh, you know, what have you, kind of let you know that, you know, other people have been there before you've done that and navigated this all successfully. So um, it's, you know, um, that can be encouraging as well. Well, and you talked about it earlier, right? That's part of community. So it's not only community for uh, kids when they, you know, live in an, an area where, you know, marriage is strong, but it's, you know, that community for married couples, we all need it to help strengthen us and, and kind of give us words of encouragement and let us know, uh, you know, we're not the first ones encountering this. Right. No, that's exactly correct. Yeah. Um, you know, I watched uh, your one video when uh, when you were at Baylor, and it was interesting, and I just kind of want to bring it up and get your perspective, how uh, at a report out of Australia tried to indicate that uh, faith in a family led to domestic violence and how they kind of twisted your study to kind of use that uh, to try to prove their point, which they weren't really able to do. But, you know, when you hear it on the news, people tend to believe it. But there are attacks in in our everyday world trying to destroy families, and that was just an example of one of them. So what I have found in the United States is that um, in, in some work that I've done is that it's actually – Sort of interestingly, it's the nominally religious men who are more likely to be violent with uh, with their spouse. Um, so it's the guy who attends church. We in, in my circle kind of Chris call them Chris Easters. People yeah, yeah. Kind of just show C, like C and E's. Yeah, Easter. yeah, yeah. So they're the ones um, who in the U.S. looks like they're more more likely to be violent um, compared actually to people who are more secular and and those who attend church regularly. And, and so that means, of course, by contrast, is that men who are regularly engaged in their church communities in the United States look like they're less likely to be violent um, towards, uh, you know, towards their, um, towards their wife. Although I want to be clear here, too, that, you know, we do see, obviously, domestic violence, you know, basically everywhere. We see sure. it, you know, among people who are churched, among those who are not churched, among those, of course, who are nominally religious. And so I think one one takeaway here, too, is not to be too triumphalistic, but to sort of acknowledge that, um, I mean, I certainly have never heard a homily focused on um, domestic violence. Not, I mean, you'd have to handle that carefully, obviously, with a, a church congregation and kids in the mix, but just to sort of like, you know, I think have people address that issue more forthrightly, you know, would be, um, would be helpful in terms of letting people sort of understand that this is an issue, um, you know, across the society, and, and we need to think about ways that we can be attentive to it and um, address it uh, constructively and help people get out of situations where, you know, there is a, a pattern of um, what's been called patriarchal violence, you know, in, in a marriage. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, in the in the end, we need to tell people how do they how do they deal with their anger? Beating someone up is not doesn't solve your anger problem, and being able to deal with it in a in a way that you can uh, you know help minimize any kind of physical violence or eliminate actually eliminate it altogether is critical. And you know, getting the help you need to do that. I mean, a homily is good to bring awareness, but people need to understand that there, there's got to be a follow through with that. They need to go to professionals to get the help they need to make sure that uh, that's not happening. Because, you know, when we see 
and you hear it all the time, domestic violence, it kind of perpetuates itself uh, in future generations when people have been exposed to that. And that's, you know, one of the other dangers kids kids uh, encounter uh, when they have a dad who does that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. I think that, you know, things like infidelity and domestic violence are often passed from one generation to the next. And, 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 and people often kind of, they do things that their parents did, you know, with a sense of almost, you know, when you look back on it, like horror and regret, like I didn't mean to do that, you know, I didn't mean to get in that situation, but, you know, so you're right, it's, it's incumbent on parents to take steps not to, um, to do things that are going to hurt their kids and also to, to try to break a cycle if their own parents, you know, um, did things like that. Well, I think, you know, the conversation's important and, you know, I kind of alluded to it, but do you see uh, deliberate attacks on the family in the media or, uh, maybe even in studies that kind of skew things that try to break up families. I mean, do you see that that people need to be aware of and realize the truth and not not everything they hear on TV or radio or wherever? Yeah, I think there there are two myths in particular that I mean, well, I, obviously, I'm you know, kind of go beyond here. Like, you know, obviously, a lot of what we see in like music and videos today is is um, clearly. Uh, you know, not helpful. I mean, it just, you know, I have teenagers and, and there's certainly, you know, some songs I'm like, no, 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 you got to turn that one off. Um, <laughs> yeah. Are you actually listening just, to the lyrics you know, of this thing? Yeah. Yeah. This one is, is, is really pretty, pretty wretched, you know, but, um, and you know, the way that it sort of depicts women oftentimes and, and sex and violence in, in a lot of music is, is, you know, is clearly, um, not helpful, but I think there's a, and that's, I think everyone can kind of, that's, you know, not, can, can understand. But the, the sort of the two more subtle arguments or messages or memes that get out there, I think, today that are not helpful as well is what I call the soulmate myth, um, in part. And that's the idea that there's some, there's someone out there, um, that's going to give you a sense of sort of ultimate meaning, happiness, and fulfillment, um, that's going to make you feel good most of the time. And, you know, I think the idea that there is, one person, one relationship that is going to give you that sense of great meaning and happiness is just, you know, it's a myth. Right. Um, and I, I'm a big fan of marriage, but marriage is, you know, it's, it's populated by two flawed people. And, um, there are plenty of times in any marriage where it's difficult and disappointing and frustrating. Um, and, you know, um, that's part and partial. So if you have this sort of soulmate myth, I think it's harder for you to deal with the seasons in marriage, the chapters in married life, you know, that are disappointing and, and, uh, and, and difficult. Um, so that's, I think, one point that I think it's worth highlighting is just the way in which, um, you know, marriage um, is not the be all and all for people. Um, paradoxically makes your marriage stronger if you have that, that recognition. Um, the second, I think, myth that's sort of, floating out there among some people it's like the kids will be okay you know like whatever i do as an adult <laughs> you know if it's to get divorced if it's to cohabit with someone if it's to you know moving out move in and out of a serious romantic relationship you know my kids are resilient i you know i'm they, they're not going to be affected by all this um and yet we know from the data that that's not true you know that if you get divorced you know, if you're cohabiting with someone, if you're moving in on a relationship, you know, um, 
a series of uh, of men or women, um, and the kids are in the household. Um, you know, all these things can be uh, traumatic for kids um, because kids thrive on stable routines with stable caregivers, and that's not what those things I just described do. So, um, I think some scholars, some writers, um, give off messages um, that are, you know, don't sort of depict family life in a way that's true, good, and beautiful. Um, so concretely, for instance, like I would say Eat, Pray, Love is a book, a movie that gives us kind of a soulmate model of relationships that's not realistic and not helpful. Um, and unfortunately, there are plenty of scholars out there who would kind of give people the idea that, or pop psychologists, the idea that, you know, that their kids are resilient and that what they do with their relationships is not, you know, ultimately um, all that consequential for how their kids do turn out. Yeah. And I think, you know, putting putting that kind of undue burden on a spouse that you're going to be my everything. I mean, that's God's place. And you put you put your spouse in God's shoes. We're going to fail every single time. And I think, you know, your point to, you know, kids will adapt no matter what you do is almost giving you a license to do whatever you want to do. It's almost a way to rationalize, uh, you know, fulfilling your own desires at the expense of other people. So, uh, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. You see it all the time. I mean, it's important, of course, on, I think, both of these two myths to realize there is there is a kind of oftentimes a legitimate desire for communion, you mm-hmm. know, um, that people have. And I, mean, I certainly know people in my social circle who I think are making mistakes when it comes to their relationship life and they have kids. And I think, you know, what's happening is that they're, they're looking for a communion for an adult relationship, and that's understandable. But they're not recognizing that, you know, what they're doing could be putting their kids at risk and that there are other ways they could kind of, you know, basically fill that hole in their soul, including, you know, friendships, becoming more engaged in in their local church, you know, and other kinds of things that would um, be better for their kids, certainly, and probably better for them, them as well, longer term. Well, I can't believe we've we've already run out of time. I appreciate your thoughts. And I think they're very, they're things that people need to kind of think about and, and look at themselves objectively. Am I struggling with any of these things? But again, how can people follow your work, Brad? So I'm on Twitter at WilcoxNMP and the website is family-studies.org. These are two places you can get more about this kind of research. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate the time. Great information. And uh, I really appreciate it because it's a whole we haven't done on, one, on any of our shows to really go in depth on, on marriage and the importance of uh, raising kids.